Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, and welcome to a new edition of Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. My name is Luke Rodheffer, calling from Palo Alto, California, and joining me today via Skype uh, from New York City is Alexander Cooley, professor of political science and specialist on Central Asia. So I thought that the best way to begin this is talking a little bit about how you became interested in the region of Central Asia because you started school in graduate school in the 1990s when the region was still very unknown to Westerners. So could you talk a little bit about your, your background and how you became interested in this region? Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me on, Luke. Uh, I think it's really a combination of things. One is I came from a family uh, that was interested in international affairs and you know, I grew up overseas, and my father was a foreign correspondent back back when they existed uh, as professions. Uh, of course, uh, they're diminishing in numbers now. And he was a specialist in Middle Eastern affairs and political history. He visited the region quite often. He wrote books. And so, you know, in some ways, maybe I thought I wanted my own region. Uh, also, I remember reading about the region. Um, in the late 80s, being fascinated that the Soviet Union had these, you know, then obscure republics um, with these quirky ethnic politics. So uh, it all came together. And really, in the early 1990s, as you mentioned, there wasn't a lot of notice, a lot of knowledge, or a lot of attention uh, paid uh, to this part of the world. And so it's something uh, it's, it's something that grew for me in college. And then what really, uh, sealed it for me is in, uh, 1993, summer 1993, I had a job with a bank, um, uh, in Cyprus and, uh, we took a tour of the region over the summer of 1993. We visited, uh, Central Asian countries as well as some countries in the Caucasus and, uh, some random parts of Russia uh, so even though that was a very kind of distinct, uh, non-academic trip, they were looking for business opportunities and looking um, to uh, uh, sell some of their products that they had. Um, it was quite an introduction um, to places like Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and Russia at the time, too. Um, so I think my interest was was steeled by that. Uh, as you were saying, in the 1990s, the whole way in which we studied this region, and I include all of uh, Eurasia in this, not just Central Asia, was really conditioned by our kind of perceptions that we were in a period of transition. So I remember, you know, one of uh, the courses I took in graduate school was a course called Making Markets, right, which was all about debates about how to transform a market economy, um, the sort of how would this all turn out or whether it's even appropriate or what kinds of hybrids are we going to get? 
that wasn't as much on the agenda. We were studying things like, is it better to go under shock therapy or gradualism? What was the importance of institution? How institutions, how should you structure privatization? How did Soviet era networks affect privatization outcomes? Um, and so it was before Central Asia had really consolidated itself as this region that was almost sort of divorced from the rest of the transition. Um, so all that went on in the 90s. And at Columbia, where I did my graduate work, I developed an interest in how the Central Asian states were interfacing with uh, the international global economic system. And I was particularly interested in how external revenues were conditioning the patronage networks that were left over from uh, the Soviet era, how they interacted with the bureaucracies, how they privileged certain sectors over the others. And I ended up settling on a dissertation topic that that looked at um, how energy-related revenues were conditioning state building in Turkmenistan and how foreign assistance and NGOs were conditioning state building in Kyrgyzstan. And I did uh, the bulk of my field research in 1998 in Kyrgyzstan, um, where I looked at both foreign aid uh, projects and a lot of also technical assistance programs um, uh, and NGOs. And interestingly enough, uh, that work didn't really amount to a book, but most of uh, my dissertation findings I published as part of an article called The NGO Scramble, uh, which remains like by far the most widely read thing I've ever written. Um, and so that data and the, those findings on NGOs and sort of the compromises made to externally sponsored legislation to protect private interests um, was part of that, uh, uh, that part of that article in International Security that eventually came out in, in 2002. Um, then I have to say, uh, uh, after doing this work, uh, and then the first book uh, became a more comparative study of colonial administrative legacies. I had the findings on Central Asia, but I wanted to put them in a comparative uh, post-imperial context. Uh, after doing that, uh, I lost interest in the region for a while, especially from the international relations point of view, because, um, you know, for one, it didn't seem like a whole lot going on. There was a consolidation of the state by these regimes. But in terms of international relations issues, um, you know, it seemed to be relatively sleepy. Uh, and then, of course, that all changes um, in 2000, 2001, where you have this intensified external interest um, on behalf of the U.S., Russia uh, and China. So um, so I'm you know in and out of the region, now back into it, we can talk about future projects. But that was my trajectory in the 1990s, um, both uh, in terms of how we studied it in graduate school and what was going on. Okay. It was a very different and region than what it is That's a now. very good way of um, talking about the next subject, where we're, where we're looking at kind of the local rules that you talk about in your title, specifically that exist in Central Asia that have really shaped how Russia, China, and the United States have tried to operate in the region. So can you kind of expand on what you mean by local rules and, and what they've meant in the, the struggle for influence in the region? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, local rules are not immutable. 
right? I mean, I think there's a fair criticism made by some of the book that, you know, I'm presenting these as some sort of, you know, timeless or culturally anchored. And I don't mean either of those. But I do notice that Central Asian elites have become a lot savvier as time has gone on in negotiating and leveraging the international system for their own purposes. Um, you know, I, I readily admit that the book, in terms of its local rules, it's very elite-centered and government-centered. Um, and I'm comfortable with that. It doesn't mean that there aren't important social forces, social moorings, new types of actors who are emerging in Central Asia. But in terms of political bargaining, um, these elites are really the primary actor. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. The sort of three local rules I refer to is uh, the rule of regime survival. In other words, local elites, they don't distinguish between external threats and domestic threats uh, to their uh, regime integrity. So that meant not only clamping down on transnational threats like we normally pers- uh, regard them, um, sort of transnational, say, criminal elements or you know, militant Islamic groups or so forth. But also over time, especially after the color revolutions, these regimes started to regard externally sponsored uh, democratic monitors and human rights monitors as also threatening to their regimes, right? So the scope of what constitutes a regime threat expanded. Um, and I think that was something that was learned. Uh, two, I think you see... Uh, the local rule of patronage politics still very much um, at play. And certainly this is something that others have looked at. Markowitz, McGlinchey's book, um, uh, also uh, uh, Erica Jones-Long, also looking at uh, uh, these types of dynamics. Uh, one thing I wanted to stress in my book was how external sources of revenues um, also became part of this using kind of public or state-centered revenues for private gains. And this is why the book delves into a number of different corruption uh, scandals linking some of the elites in the region uh, to kleptocratic practices, right? Whether it's bank accounts of Niasov uh, being used to funnel um, um, hydrocarbon and fuel uh, or, or refueling contracts um, to scandals involving um, the so-called Geffen affair, uh, to the Manas fuel scandals in Kyrgyzstan, and, and many other similar things. And then that leads to the third rule that I described as a local rule, which is the kind of the brokering function these elites play. In other words, they, what they've also learned over the years is that international donors, international militaries, international uh, diplomats are interested in hearing um, uh, about how good governance is going to proceed, how they're going to liberalize, how they're going to democratize, how they're going to reform. And they've all become, uh, with a couple of exceptions, adept at leveraging these expectations, but then translating this, this interest and these resources for their domestic sort of constituencies, right? So this is the story of the Tajik National Bank governor diverting um, certain IMF loans into agricultural projects, uh, that involve his immediate family members, right? Uh, that kind of brokering uh, kind of idea. 
Um, so these are all the local rules. They involve uh, elites and their behaviors that have been learned through a couple of decades of interacting with this variety of external actors, uh, both official uh, and okay. non-governmental. So when you're talking about local rules, you've also been very careful to note that Central Asia is often viewed as much more homogenous than it actually is. Can you talk a little bit about how the region yeah. itself really should not be looked at a looked at as a homogenous entity? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there are you know there are certain imperatives, you know, the regime survival imperative, the patronage politics that. Um, apply more or less to, to, to all of the countries. But in terms of how they manifest themselves, the structure of these economies, their socioeconomic status, you know, the different ethnic mix that you have, the power of the Soviet legacy, the power of Russian communities, um, they are very different. And so the homogenization um, is also somewhat of um, an analytical and normative move on our part when we refer to the region as a region. So, you know, you have Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. So both, you know, authoritarian kinds of polities, but very different in their outlook of the world. Kazakhstan, uh, the elite there is internationally educated, quite trained in global norms, highly professional, highly competent. Um, uh, they've all... Uh, many of the upper level bureaucrats have done stints in the most prestigious schools um, in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and also very on top of sort of global uh, kinds of bureaucratic practices and so forth. Um, and you contrast that and also a relatively open economy, integrated uh, types of capital markets and, 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 and you know, uh, legal expertise and, and so forth. Contrast that to Uzbekistan, where you have a very isolated economy, an autarkic economy, real barriers to trade, real barriers to uh, capital mobility, no significant payment system, so to speak of. Uh, and you have a different type of authoritarianism. You have, um, you know, a, a repressive state, very powerful security services, and also a state that's not so much concerned about its international image um, or its, uh, you know, adhering to international norms. Uh, and so Uzbekistan, uh, a much different actor on the world stage uh, than Kazakhstan. Um, then, you know, you have Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, two states that are both relatively poor, um, but again, very different. Kyrgyzstan, you have uh, quite an interesting a mix of different types of uh, uh, ethnicities, uh, a different uh, degree of contact with the international system. Kyrgyzstan has always been relatively open. You've had uh, really more of a civil society in Kyrgyzstan uh, being developed. You have a tradition of protest in Kyrgyzstan. Um, which many sort of attribute to external factors, but it's actually not true. On issues like environmental issues or mining issues, you have kind of homegrown, um, you know, social movements there. Um, and then, of course, you have Kyrgyzstan be this crossroads of geopolitical intrigue, whether it's Russia, the U.S., China, uh, the European Union, and other countries. So all this creates what some would describe a vibrant politics. Some describe it as a very kind of chaotic politics. 
Um, um, but that's, you know, Kyrgyzstan's really a hub um, for a lot of these sort of contemporary dynamics. Tajikistan, you have a situation there where, uh, uh, in essence, you have, the, you know, the most uh, brutal, protracted of uh, the civil wars uh, uh, in Central Asia, uh, losses of life in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands displaced, um, you know, a civil war that I think continues to inform people's memories and understanding of the state-building process of issues like democracy and like authoritarianism, where political stability is prized um, as a result. Uh, and where the state building process has been really painful um, to a great degree. Uh, of course, you have a ruling family there um, with a lot of opaque dealings, their relationship to Talco, the Tajik Aluminum Company, um, on which you know 60% of Tajik export earnings uh, uh, are dependent. Uh, and you have an open door policy to the international community, but it's not as uh, uh, it's not as welcoming, and you see some of the results of that backlash lately, sort of the clamping down on opposition figures, journalists, academics even. Um, so, uh, uh, again, they're both poor, uh, they're both uh, uh, relatively uh, 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 strategically isolated and have been used in different ways um, for the coalition campaign against Afghanistan, but their flavors are very different. And then you get to Turkmenistan, right, which, you know, a lot of people regard as some sort of analogy to, uh, you know, modern North Korea. I think it's fair in some ways, unfair in others. Um, you know, my sense of Turkmenistan is that there was a real institutional damage that was inflicted by the Niyasov years, especially in areas like public services, public health and education, where the sort of cutting of the educational budget, sort of forcing um, you know, school-aged children into sort of nine years of school, reduced from you know, 12, um, now it's being sort of taken up by, by 10, that you're only now starting to see some of the effects of that, and that um, there's a real kind of human capital skills deficiency in Turkmenistan. It's going to take a while um, to be remade, and as a result, this aids the kind of closure of the country and sort of the paranoia of the country that, you know, not even, you know, Russian language media are allowed. Um, real concern about any kinds of external influences, contacts, NGOs, civil society. <coughs> Excuse me. And the Turkmen challenge is, you know, it's, it's, it's diversification away from being so dependent on gas revenues. But to do that, you do need to have, you know, uh, a wide range of sort of skills and a legal framework to accomplish all this. And, you know, they're very much lagging behind um, in these areas. So their challenge is that, in essence, they've swapped Gazprom as a patron for CNPC as a patron. They've promised really most of their future natural gas production. Uh, to China. So how do they break out of that box? Well, they need to diversify themselves in both terms of you know, potential markets, but also in terms of just the sector of the economy, what they produce, um, you know, their interactions with the outside world. So, you know, different flavors across the region. Um, you know, they've, 
they've all coped with these local rules somewhat differently. One final thought on the homogenization, you know, and I think you've seen this with Kazakhstan, that there's also, on behalf of Astana, I think a wariness of being lumped in with Central Asia because of, I think, of some negative connotations it holds, also a legacy of the Afghanistan war. And, and my sense is that's why, you know, Kazakhstan wants to both decentral Asia eyes its identity, maybe even change the name of the con- country you know, to, you know, land of Kazakhs um, to get rid of the Stan. Um, uh, but I, 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 you know, projecting themselves um, as kind of a global player, right, by doing things like Expo or bidding on the Winter Olympics um, is a way of trying to get themselves out of the neighborhood of being affiliated with their fellow Central Asian countries than Russia and China. Um, uh, you know, maybe maybe one other point here. Uh, we, we treat the region as a region, but by some indicators, it's a region, and by some it isn't, right? So if you're to look at you know, formal trade barriers, you would see that this region is actually the most trade-unfriendly region in the world. Right. If you look at certain indicators like time of import and export, um, you know, that these suggestions that we can create the new Silk Route are very much aspirational. You know, the, the, the kind of trade data uh, do not justify. It. On the other hand, the leaders of the region themselves look at each other very closely. They follow uh, what uh, what others do. Uh, they're very mindful of demonstration effects. If something happens in one country, they're very concerned whether it could happen in the other. So in that ways, conceptually and socially, it is more of a region um, because it's more of a kind of a grouping uh, that has uh, a kind of a social dynamic to it and, and certain conceptions of social status to it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a complicated issue, but it's also a really interesting one on how homogenous it is yeah. and how much of a and, region it is. Yeah, uh, you're mentioning just recently trade, trade barriers. And one of the main projects that you talk about in your book is how Russia's attempting to create its Eurasian Union. And it currently has a customs union with Kazakhstan. And this project has been all over the news as a result of what's going on in Ukraine. So can you talk a little bit about how Russia's Eurasian Union uh, has been used by Russia to try and maintain a quote-unquote privileged sphere of influence in the region. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think Russian policy towards Central Asia, it, it's tricky to analyze because I think it's driven more by social factors than it is absolute material ones. And, you know, this goes against, you know, my normal mode of analyzing incentives and motives. But I think Russia is driven with this status in mind, that it wants to be, as Medvedev said after the Georgia War in 2008, the region's privileged um, power. Now, for the, for the most part, for the 1990s, well, the 1990s, it was sorting itself out. Um, and the 2000s, it accomplishes or tried to accomplish this by uh, trying to get the Central Asian states uh, to sign up to a number of agreements. But you know, these regional integration agreements, especially the original CIS agreement, they didn't really have any teeth, right? They were kind of virtual agreements, as Roy Allison calls in one of his uh, articles. So virtual regionalism. And all these countries would sign up because they realized, you know, 
Russia wants this and it's costless to them. So you would sign um, these various protocols on economic, political, military cooperation. What I see in the customs union and now the Eurasian Economic Union is a kind of regionalism 2.0. It's that even though the Kazakhs might have thought that this was just another regional agreement, the Russians want to turn this into a tool of exclusive economic partnership. And originally, the Customs Union and the Eurasian Union were formulated uh, on uh, mimicking the European Union, right? That they would be regional uh, unions founded on free trade zones with strong supranational legal institutions, right? So you'd have uh, you know, a court and um, you know commissioners, and you would delegate economic policies to these supranational organs. Oh, and by the way, because they're based on sort of population, you know, Russia would have the controlling voting share in these. And, and I think Moscow had a genuine, genuine desire to do this, like to sort of simulate an EU-like structure that, of course, it would de facto control, but have it be relatively legally rational and so forth. One of the things the Crimea crisis has done is that, or the Ukraine crisis now, um, is that it forced Russia into kind of signing off and granting concessions to these member states before it wanted to, in the interest of signaling that it had partnerships. So, you know, obviously I think this also applies to the gas deal it did with China, um, the high-profile one, but it also um, applies to, you know, the inaugural uh, Eurasian Union, uh, or rather um, Eurasian Economic Union Agreement, in which it made a number of concessions. Um, For instance, it gave Belarus... Uh, the right to re-export uh, energy. It had been trying to clamp down on that. Um, it gave uh, Kazakhstan the big concession it wanted, which was to not have uh, politics uh, and political legal matters be regulated. Um, so it would be economic only. This is something for Mr. Idrisov sort of trumpeted um, after the signing. Uh, and it gave Armenia a number of concessions. I think, you know, over 700 of them on the customs duty for sort of politically sensitive uh, types of goods. So what you've seen is, is in this attempt to exclusively lock in these countries, Russia has given these sorts of concessions and exemptions, which has made it not so much an EU type structure. It, it looks, um, you know, quite ad hoc in some ways. Um, now, having said that, I think the current tug of war is over Kyrgyzstan. And is Kyrgyzstan going to be oriented uh, towards um, the international community um, through its WTO membership and its very heavy re-export trade with China? Or is it going to fall into Moscow's orbit? Uh, a couple of points to remember. Uh, I think, one, Moscow truly... Uh, has the levers now to force the Kyrgyz leadership into these decisions uh, that even though Kyrgyzstan might have a preference for an open door multi-vector policy, in reality, uh, Russia holds a lot of cards now and it's trying to transform Kyrgyzstan in somewhat of a climb. Having said that, 
Uh, I'm not sure what capacity Kyrgyzstan is going to have to be able to enforce a lot of the dictates of the customs union, even if it formally joins, right? And here, I think Kazakhstan has a role to play, too. Uh, are the Kazakhs going to truly keep that Kazakh-Kyrgyz border open, right? Or are they going to keep it closed in a line of defense? Um, is Kyrgyzstan going to have the technical capacity to implement these various sort of customs union uh, regulations and procedures to accurately log duties um, and so forth. So there's, I think, uh, certainly the pressure is there from Russia to make Kyrgyzstan join, but I'm not sure what capacity the Kyrgyz state will have uh, to actually sign up. And all in the meantime, is there going to be a robust, persistent cross-border trade um, and shuttle trade with China. Um, my guess is, you know, it'll probably endure, uh, maybe not to the same scale that it was as some of these sort of markets are shut down. Um, but, um, but the, the natural, uh, gravity of trade is with China. And I think, you know, one final point to remember, China's WTO accession, its free trade regime has coincided really with China's rise. And so this is also a point, um, Marlene uh, Laruelle and Sebastian Perus making their book about you know Central Asia and China is that Kyrgyzstan has experienced economic globalization via China, right? That that's its vector for globalization, um, and I'm not sure that's going to be shut down. Um, but certainly, I think the important thing to remember about this kind of integration 2.0, both under the Eurasian Economic Union and under the CSTO, is that China is trying to lock in, right, these countries into more exclusive partnerships um, than it did before. And in some ways, this is what's making these countries uh, uh, nervous about joining um, um, these new kind of yeah. souped up and one of the other topics you talk about when discussing China's relationship with Central Asia is how, how it funnels a lot of foreign direct investment through tax havens. And I thought it was one of the more interesting uh, subjects you talked about in the book. Can you talk a little bit about how China um, engages in this type of investment through tax havens in the region? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not a topic we know a lot of, a lot about, um, but it's, it's one I think that's increasingly drawing the attention of scholars like you know, Jason Sharman's written on um, the practice of round-tripping, right, where Chinese firms uh, use offshore entities to minimize their tax responsibilities um, and then, you know, repatriate sort of funds having done that. Um, what I think you're seeing in Central Asia in general, then I'll get to China in specific, is the offshoring of a lot of FDIs. So, my favorite example of this, if we look at sort of Kazakh FDI statistics, um, you'll see who is responsible for 40% of investment in Kazakhstan. It's the Netherlands. Now, if you think these are Dutch companies, you know, you're wrong. Um, you know, this is the equivalent of sort of, you know, Delaware in the European Union, um, that, you know, a lot of holding companies are registered in Holland because of sort of the tax benefits. Yet there's confusion about this at the highest level. So every year, Nazarbayev holds this 
kind of annual meeting to thank the ambassadors of the 10 largest investors. And the Dutch ambassador is always there and he's shaking Nazarbayev's hand. When in point of fact, right, there's very actual little Dutch investment going into Kazakhstan. It's all, but it's rooted through Dutch companies um, because of, uh, again, the tax situation because of the Dutch bit, which allows uh, uh, different kinds of legal and arbitration procedures uh, to be enacted. Um, so FDI statistics on their own aren't actually a very good measure anymore of the actual country of origin of a lot of these investments. Um, in China and specific, in, in particular, we know that Chinese companies uh, like to route a lot of their energy deals through offshore vehicles, um, right? One of the famous ones um, that I talk about in the book was CNPC and its uh, relationship to Darley Investment Vehicles, uh, which was a BVI-registered uh, uh, offshore company uh, through which uh, the sale of a portion of Kazakh National Oil Company um, occurred. Um, so, uh, you know, this pattern of using offshore companies to sort of conceal um, country of origin to minimize your tax liability um, uh, is important in general, but it's even more important for China, which also wants to downplay, um, you know, its economic blueprint in the region um, because of, I think, of growing concerns of sort of of Chinese economic uh, power and takeover. And, you know, just one final example, um, you know, there's a, a, a real disagreement amongst analysts and scholars as to how much of the Kazakh oil industry is actually controlled or owned by China, right? And you hear different estimates, anything from like 22% to even, you know, uh, mid-40s, right? Or even sort of approaching 50%. I, I don't think it's that high. But um, And part of the reason why we can't tell is that a lot of these deals are structured through holding companies, offshore vehicles, uh, you know, joint ventures registered in third countries um, that keep um, the actual origins uh, of the owner um, uh, are relative mystery. So, you know, for me, this offshore dimension is very important. It's actually the subject of a current project of mine, yeah, which and we can get into later. I when guess. talking about China and Russia, the the organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is one of the most important uh, kind of coalitions that both countries are a member of. Can you talk a little bit of, about the role of the SEO in Central Asia currently? Yeah, sure. So the SEO, it's, it's an interesting, I think, both policy and scholarly topic. I think it's an organization which um, I think has aroused a lot of sensationalist coverage, uh, but also uh, a lot of inaccurate coverage over what it does and I think sort of the successes that it's had. So... You know, I, I, I've, I've actually been in sort of fora and debates with people who say, no, the SEO is, has a tree, free trade forum. That's actually not true, right? Um, you know, aspirationally, Chinese leaders talked about earlier in the 2000s sort of a hope that the SEO could become a regional free trade forum, but it hasn't. Uh, and then, of course, after the Astana Declaration in 2005, that foreign military bases should be put on the timetable for removed, 
to be removed, which was followed by the eviction of the U.S. from Uzbekistan a few weeks later, there was a widespread perception that the SEO was emerging into a kind of an anti-NATO military bloc, right, to counter the Western presence and influence in Central Asia. And that's also extreme. That's also not true. So instead, what is it? Well, it's more of a security organization than it is a defense or an alliance. Um, and where you've had the most cooperation is on internal security matters, right? So transnational threats, um, you know, a fear of externally sponsored colored revolutions, democratic change. Um, on these topics, the Central Asian countries can actually agree with Russia and China. Uh, so you had the formation of the regional anti-terrorism structure, right, with the acronym RATS based in Tashkent. Um, they are representatives of the respective ministries of interior. They meet, they exchange data. Uh, they have a common blacklist of both organizations and groups that are technically uh, engaged in extremism, terrorism, or separatism, right, which is the security mission d'être. Uh, of the SEO combating those three evils. Incidentally, those are the same three evils as in Chinese security doctrine. So there's a clear kind of replication there. And I think what you've gotten is the kind of blacklisting and the kind of ratcheting up of, you know, different sort of pet regime threats, transnational and domestic being thrown on the list and people and the country sort of recognizing each other's uh, uh, sort of, uh, extremisms and separatisms and terrorisms in exchange for mutual recognition. The 2009 anti-terrorism treaty is very interesting because it actually empowers uh, the signatory countries on a number of extraterritorial matters. It gives the right of security services and law enforcement in one country to conduct investigation on the territory of another. It gives the right of countries to bypass international political asylum procedures and turn over suspects um, without, a, I would argue, an appropriate um, um, level of probable cause to the security services of a requesting country. In fact, it mandates that they do so within 30 days. So there's a number of interesting kind of extraterritorial features there that sort of enshrine this domestic international security cooperation. But on the economic front, a lot of aspirational projects that the SEO had, almost all of them Chinese in origin, have been squelched, mostly by Russia, but also most of the Central Asian states are also nervous about institutionalizing Chinese economic dominance in the regions in the set of SEO procedures. Now, you don't hear a lot of this talked about publicly, right? So this is why I say in some of my writings, it's sort of you know public cooperation and private rivalry. But Russia um, has pretty much opposed every multilateral economic initiative that the Chinese have introduced from a regional free trade area to a kind of creating a kind of emergency standby crisis fund or anti-crisis fund uh, during the global financial meltdown in 2008, 2009. The Russians opposed that to the latest move that Russia opposed the formation of a regional development bank that would be funded by the SEO. And the Chinese have gotten the message now. I, I don't think they're going to propose any more economic initiatives. They realize that Russia opposes these things, that it's very sensitive to sort of signing off on anyone else's sort of economic initiatives. Uh, and I think they're almost sort of comfortable with that. They might not like it. 
um, because I think they realize that just their economic momentum resides with them. Um, so that's a delicate dance. So, so the SEO, I, I wouldn't say it's unimportant, but I think its actual level of accomplishment hasn't matched its aspirations. Now, where I do think it is important is more than the kind of the normative uh, side of things that I think there is a kind of, you know, differentiation with the West, even it's, it's sort of mission statement, the Shanghai spirit, which is to sort of empower the sovereignty uh, and promote non-interference in each other's affairs. That's really an implicit criticism of the kinds of political and economic conditions that Western international organizations and Western countries impose on these countries. So I do think this normative framework, the Shanghai spirit, um, the focus on sovereignty does contrast somewhat with the West. Um, but I think you have to go issue by issue, area by area, and for the most part, the actual accomplishments of the SEO have not matched what it, uh, what it aspired to do. Um, but I think Beijing wants to present the forum as a success. And I don't think it's in anyone's interest not to acknowledge that publicly. So you get a lot of ceremony, a lot of fanfare, an annual regional summit, even though you don't have uh, a lot of concrete regional uh, okay. integration. And uh, I thought it would probably be good before we wrapped up for you to talk a little bit more about your current writing projects, one of which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, sure. So I'm currently uh, working on uh, a book-length project. It's actually co-authored with John Heathershaw from the University of Exeter, and it's um, entitled Offshore Central Asia. We published a, sh- a very short article kind of previewing some of the uh, arguments we're making in the spring in open democracy. But basically the book is looking at all the ways in which political, legal, and economic contestation are taking place outside of the region, right? And there's a couple of myths we try and explore and explode. One is the myth of the heartland, right? The idea that Central Asia is somehow isolated, sequestered in the heart of Eurasia, not integrated. In fact, it's actually integrated very well in some ways, just not the ways that we would uh, want it to be. And this gets back to sort of, you know, the offshore point um, that, you know, and this is why I dislike, you know, the the kind of assumptions behind kind of Western policies about the new Silk Route, that in fact, it's not regional economic cooperation that's, or the lack thereof, that's hindering economic development in Central Asia. It's actually kleptocracy and capital flight. It's the fact that so many of these elite controlled companies and funds ship their uh, legal persona offshore beyond uh, actual national accountability. Um, and so, you know, part of what we're looking at is both how political contestation takes place outside of the region amongst, say, uh, a Central Asian elites vying for influence, um, but also how the legal personas of a com- company like a Talco or an Asia Universal Bank in Kyrgyzstan, uh, how they have uh, set up uh, correspondent accounts with different sort of international and Western entities, um, but also how they exist offshore, um, say, subject to U.K. 
uh, uh, UK courts and UK law in the case of Talco and a very expensive litigation that they had there. So what we're trying to do is, 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 is take away, disprove the idea that sort of Central Asia is integrated. On the other hand, we also want to take a whack at this kind of globalization of law literature that views kind of globalization, legal globalization as having these kinds of homogenizing uh, and transformative effects. We would argue in Central Asia, what you see are elites actually using the tools of legal globalization for what I would argue is sort of, you know, their local rules, their purposes, except they're doing it on a more global scale, right? That they're engaging in arbitrations, uh, they're freezing assets of political opponents, they're uh, using Interpol watch lists to request uh, political extraditions. They're carrying on regional politics sort of overseas. Um, and that, I think, is part of the next kind of evolution of uh, where we find politics in the region. I guess what's at stake here is I disagree a little bit with other kind of analysts or political scientists who want to locate the sources of political competition within these countries. I think maybe there is a little bit of political competition in a place like Kyrgyzstan, but really minimally elsewhere. Um, but I do think it exists outside of the region. That's where we have to turn to uh, to view this. So, um, you know, it's 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 really a book about Central Asia politics and globalization, and and we hope it will um, encourage people to look at Central Asian politics in a more kind of okay. transnational. Perspective. Well, um, thank you very much for joining us to talk. About- bit about your book, Great Game, Local Rules.